you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the success report. The success report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Bro, man, I just feel more and more blessed every man, time you, you have you, a guest you, on. You always say that. I though. know, but it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I know it's like my go-to line. I feel blessed, but like, you know, when, when, when people are willing to come onto your show and, and, you know, have a conversation with you, you know, it's, it's, it's a blessing. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, yes. So uh, for our for our listeners, uh, today we have a special guest, Arnold MP, Arnold Viersen, Albertan. Is that how you guys say it? Albertan? Welcome. Yep. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. So for our listeners who aren't uh, familiar with you, uh, can you give them a, a, a background on yourself? Well, uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Darnell and Joel, for inviting me on here. Uh, I'm a member of Parliament for Peace River Westlock, or as I like to call it, the Promised Land. Uh, it's a big chunk of northern Alberta. Uh, we are the honey capital of Canada. we got 7,500 dairy animals, so we're literally flowing with milk and honey. I, uh, I'm oh, is that what you call it, the Promised Land? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, no, it, well, it gets better than that. We're uh, we're also I represent the municipal districts of Peace and Opportunity, <laughs> and it's all it's all been settled on a promise called Treaty Number Eight. So it's it's quite literally the promised land in more ways than one. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm an auto mechanic by trade, um, so a bit of an odd duck when it comes to um, members of Parliament. I don't think there's any other members of Parliament who are auto mechanics and my friends always say Arnold there's not a wrench big enough to fix Ottawa (laughs) (laughs) I I always say well we gotta we gotta try one way or the other right so I uh I got elected in 2015 so I've survived two elections so far I'm congratulations uh, yeah thank you and uh married got uh four children and one more on the way uh Two, two girls, two boys, and uh, keeps keeps life uh, busy and entertaining. There's no doubt about that, and and keeps keeps things in perspective for sure. So. Right. Uh, what made you want to uh, get into politics? Well, I uh, I just got mad one day. I guess is the this the story of it. I wasn't really involved in politics a whole bunch, but uh, um, coming from Alberta, I. I particularly around pipeline politics that really motivated me the the fact that the rest of the country seemed happy to take all of the money that Alberta produced but not so interested in allowing Alberta to continue to produce that money so um, that was one thing the other thing was uh, like the um, I'm pro-life guy and I was just frustrated with how um, the government seemed to lack any interest in that area and then uh um, firearms issues and firearms rights as well were like big on my priority list. So th- that's what got me engaged in politics. And and then uh, where I live was a brand new riding in 2013. 
And so in 2015 was the first election for that area. And so I'm the first MP for that area. So that was a, just an opportunity it was probably the biggest thing I thought, well, you know what, there's no incumbent, nobody to beat to get the spot essentially. So I, I put my name in. So that, that's how I, that's how I got involved. It's not, not the noblest of ideas, <laughs> I guess, but uh, you got mad and got involved. I think that's, that's what happens for a lot of people, but they, yeah, no, I, I, um, I think it's commendable that, cause you know, a lot of times, you know, people are going to complain and mope and complain, uh, but yeah. you actually, you actually did something. You actually, you know, just, you know, you guys just threw your wrench away and said, look, man, I need yeah. to fix this. So, that, um, <laughs> yeah, it's also, it says, a, it says a lot about uh, you as a person, but also like um, I, I read your bio that you're uh, a man of faith and I was wondering how you um, incorporate that into how that, what role does that p- play in you being a politician? Yeah, I guess it's, uh, I always, I get asked that question a lot. Um, I, I guess I, it, it, it plays a role and it doesn't play a role. Like it, it just is a thing. Um the it's my faith is motivates me for everything that I do and including the the way that I do politics and the, and the policies that I pursue and all this kind of stuff. So um, I, I, yeah, this, I guess to some degree, the challenge that we face here in Canada is the, the secularists have effectively convinced the church that the politics and religion don't mix. Um, and yet what's iron, the irony is, is that they don't leave their worldview at the door. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite theologians always says, it's not a matter of, of whether, but which, right? It's not a matter of whether religion plays a role in politics. It's just a matter of which religion's playing a role in politics. So, mm-hmm. Yes, nice, nice. No, yeah, totally. we, we did a, an episode way back, I think it was like 35, called Church and State. And, and you know, I, I always make the comment, you know, it's sort of the American doctrine, but the, the doctrine was that the state was supposed to stay out of the church. And somehow it's been flipped that the church is supposed to stay out of the state. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally, that's the, and the, um, like the separate separation of church and state in, in the American, like it's a fairly American idea, um, was very much that Congress. So like the national government wouldn't impose a national state church upon the, individual states because the irony is is that when that document was written i think nine out of the 13 states had a a state recognized church (laughs) so yeah yeah it's fascinating yeah no it's but on one of our episodes we we made the distinction that you know there there can be overlap with religion and politics but not church and state and that there's a difference between um the entities, the institutions of the church and, and the state, and then when it comes to ideologies, religion, and politics, uh, sometimes there there is overlap. Um, not just Christian religion, but religion in general and ideologies. There sometimes there's overlap. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, hundred percent. But that's not a distinction. That's a distinction that we make on our side of the argument. Yes. but that's yes. not a distinction that's made on the other side. Um, the, the folks that I get to deal with that are telling me to leave my religion out of it, or or there's a separation of church and state. Um, they're basically just telling me that my opinion doesn't matter and I should leave it at home kind of thing. Um, so I push back on that uh, regularly. But... Good call. And and I mean, it sounds like it's a, it's a tactic to win the argument, not to actually, to avoid addressing your position as opposed to actually, you know, wrestling with the, the arguments you're trying to make, I'm guessing. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's very much a tactic, yeah. Yeah. So we did an episode, uh, episode 105, uh, Porn and Poutine, and we discussed about uh, the Pornhub uh, parent company, MindGeek, um, and and the uh, New York Times article that was done on them and exposing uh, the the child pornography, the rape videos, and so forth. But the thing that stuck out about that report to Joel and I was that MindGeek is in Montreal. And sometimes we look at America and so they're like, ah, everything terrible comes out of there. Um, but then we saw, I was like, whoa, this is, this is in our backyard. This, um, this business is in our backyard. And, and so we were looking at um, MasterCard, of course, and Visa restricting its use on those sites. But we wanted to look at um, stopping mind geek and pornography and child sex trafficking and child pornography on our side of the border and looking at practical solutions that we could do legally to stop them. And, and so, yeah, and that's why, and that's why we wanted to sit down and talk with you about that. So, uh, but what, what has been your take so far on the whole um, investigation on mind geek? Yeah. So this goes back a long time for me, uh, back when I got elected, I got chose number 37 on the private members business list. And so at the beginning of every parliament uh, after election, they basically put everyone's name in a hat, then they pull a, pull them out. And that gives us an order as to who gets to go on the private members bill. So I got chose number 37 back in 2015. And I put a motion on the order paper calling for the government of Canada to do a study on the impacts of pornography on Canadian society. Um, way back then. When I did that, I didn't have a clue um, about uh, this company called Pornhub or MindGeek, but uh, fairly quickly discovered that um, Canada is the has the luxury of being the host of the largest porn company in the world in Pornhub. Um, so, uh, so it's a major uh, player in this in this industry, I suppose you could say. Um, the Americans actually, the reason that this is not an American company is because the American law is actually better. Um, so the American law requires that a company like Pornhub um, maintain records of the uh, age and identification of all of the folks that appear in their videos. And so because of that requirement, um, they, they didn't set up in the United States, they set up in Canada. So that that is one of the things that we're working on is ensuring that anybody that appears online in a video of one of these adult sites, their age and consent be verified um, in some fashion. Mm -hmm. uh, so and that would, I was just going to say, with what they did with purging all the content, would that assuming we pass that law, would 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 it likely be that they're sort of currently in in um, in compliance or yeah not really um because they currently they still have like their verified content they call it verified but that's that still is no that just means that they have um they recognize these particular uploaders um as as partners which is a like they've they've got a, a revenue sharing agreement um mm -hmm. so they would know than, 
they would that means they would know who the uploader is but it doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that they have the other terms to the as you laid out with regards to consent yeah yeah so but yeah that so that motion back in 20 i put it on the order paper back in 2016 it passed the house of commons unanimously in 2017 so interesting to note that pornography um hadn't been studied by the f uh federal government since 1985 well, in 1985, the internet didn't exist, and I wasn't even born. Uh, so we, uh, so that that study took place, and that kind of set, like, started the trajectory of to where we are today. Um, basically, uh, I came to the awareness of this company that called Pornhub, and that Canada was actually a big blight on the international landscape because this company Pornhub was operating here in Canada and with relative impunity like um, in Canada we have pretty good laws around obscenity laws and also uh, child pornography laws and also um, providing access to pornography so if you if you give a minor pornography that's a that's a criminal code offense right but uh, all three of these areas of the law didn't seem to be enforced at all online right like when it came to your corner store and selling playboy magazine that seemed to be all all three of those areas seemed to be well regulated but when it came to the internet and the porn company pornhub or mindgeek um it all three of those laws just seemed to be ignored entirely so that's um so starting in 2017 we started like beating the drum to say like hey like this is the laws of the country they're not being followed um is there a reason why this is not being prosecuted is there do we need to change the law here here's an example of a of some of the titles of videos that are up on Pornhub is is this not illegal activity um we so we started bringing that to the attention of the Canadian government uh and most re in this parliament alone in march of 2017 or tw uh, 2020 march of 2020 um six members of parliament including myself we signed a letter um, to the prime minister saying like hey here's an example of a bunch of egregious videos that are up on pornhub seems to us that they're breaking the law in several different directions um please respond um, we got no response back then and then in March or in November of 2020, we sent another letter um, signed by 20 members of Parliament uh, to the Justice Minister, basically outlining the same the same thing again, like saying like, "Hey, this is like overtly racist, um, overtly sexist, overtly child pornography. Um, this is like just this isn't the depiction of rape. This is like an actual rape video." Uh, surely there's something to do we, you can do something about this and if you can't like please tell us where the law needs to be changed and, and let's get on it that letter sparked a new york times report um, an article in the new york times called the children of pornhub okay that's the one we um yep. read yeah so that basically it seemed like we were beating our heads against the wall up until that article came out and then all of a sudden the ground shifted dramatically and suddenly the prime minister was being asked about this at his oh boy morning morning press conferences <laughs> and 
like three committees at the House of Commons was suddenly like had to study this and and uh, the ground really moved really very quickly. So yeah, it uh, it it was uh, yeah, it's been crazy to watch how quickly um, things, things change. Can, yeah, things can move when when you get the public on your side. Yeah, and so that's that's what then then um, Mastercard and Visa both did like an investigation, and in three days they they concluded that there was likely illegal activity happening on Pornhub, and so they ended their relationship with Pornhub. Um, kudos to uh, PayPal. PayPal actually a year earlier had already ended their relationship with Pornhub, and uh, yeah, so because we had been. There, there's the National Center to End Sexual Exploitation of the United States. They'd already been harassing PayPal and MasterCard and Visa for years to to end their relationship with with Pornhub. Um, but yeah, the New York Times article and the public scrutiny um, did that. And then um, MindGeek or Pornhub pulled down 80% of their content from the site. Yes, which, actually, we read that. If that's not an admission of guilt, I don't know what is. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Like they they spent all this time saying, "Oh, there was nothing wrong here. There's nothing to see here. It's it's all above board. We're all legal. Like we don't want illegal content on our site." And then, then when the scrutiny like appears, they're like, "Oh uh, yeah, we're gonna check this out again." Right. Like. Yeah, I was gonna say when their business model gets disrupted and they can't, you know, make money. Yeah. Time for some change, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So where's the case right now in regards to uh, the shakeup in regards to us paying attention to um, uh, MindGeek and, and pornography? Um, but where is it right now in the country? Well, yeah. So like I think it's been um, it's been good to have this exposed. It just allows everybody to just take a moment and reflect on where we are at as a country. Um, this, there's a, there currently is a study going on at the ethics commission, uh, the ethics committee. And so that's, if you've seen any of the testimony, that's where that's happening. And that study isn't complete yet. So that study will like, they're doing an investigation as to like, what has Pornhub been participating in is the story that Pornhub is telling us is that like real. And that committee will make recommendations to the government as to, Hey, um, here's some directions that you should go. Here's some laws that you should change. Here's, yeah, here's here's some things that porn, Pornhub should be held accountable by. Um, so that that's ongoing. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't mean that like the war, um, the the war on por porn is is kind of epitomized by that like struggle that we're having with as a country with what do we do with Pornhub. But um, in, in, I guess, greater terms or broader terms, um, we, we still need to just look at what are the impacts of, of pornography on Canadian society. And so things that we do know is 85% of the population is consuming porn on a weekly basis, right? If we, uh, I always say, uh, if uh, pornography is to human trafficking, what cigarettes are to cancer, and if we think about it in those terms, back in the 60s, nearly 70% of the population was smoking cigarettes. And we just didn't know that that was bad for you. We didn't had no idea that it was harm, it was cool, it was the thing everybody was doing. There was no, like nobody thought that you got cancer from cigarettes. Today, we now, the, 
only 13% of the population uh, is consuming cigarettes. And they do so knowing that they're likely giving themselves cancer. Right? And we need to we need to work on pornography in kind of those terms, right? Like think about the fact that we've got a large percentage of the population consuming it. They have no idea that it's harmful and that they are contributing to the exploitation of women and girls around the world and that they should stop doing that so that they aren't exploiting women and girls around the world. Um, when we get to the, once we get that conversation happening, um, we can reduce the, the usage percentage and, uh, and hopefully, hopefully make Canada not have the largest porn company in the world. So um, a lot of what you're saying, recall, I was listening to your speech uh, on uh, Motion 47, okay, um, which was the online sexual violence motion, uh, which was unanimously adopted. I think you might have referenced it uh, when you were talking. Um, yeah. What, what's, what you said something in there that resonates with what you just said now, which was, or, or you didn't quite say it, but in that video you had mentioned, um, you know, you're speaking about you know, so much of the content being degrading um, and and not just, you know, maybe what we would think of with regards to, you know, nude images. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and then you spoke about, you know, adolescence at 12 years old, this being, you know, the means that they're becoming sexually educated. Mm -hmm. And, and what I find peculiar is like that, mo that, that motion was unanimously adopted. Things started moving forward. Um, nothing seems to have come of it, right? So um, maybe can you speak to that a little bit and, and also maybe, you know, unpack some of what you learned uh, um, even more about sort of um, the influence it's having on our youth and their their perceptions of sex. Mm -hmm. So going right back to M47, Motion 47, that was my private member's motion um, back 2016, 2017. The, the motivation for that really came out of the, the Retea Parsons story. I don't know if you remember Retea Parsons. She was uh, a 17-year-old girl committed suicide in 2013. But back in 2011, when she was only 14 years old, she was at a party and she was raped at that party. And a number of boys um, videotaped, participated and videotaped the entire thing and put it up on their Facebook page and their... And, yeah and so that always haunted me a little bit it was like like what did that was the motivation like why did these guys think that this was so normal like they they obviously didn't think that this was illegal what they were doing they thought this was normal activity and what made them think that this was so normal that they would brag about it and they would post it on their own on their own social media right um that 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 those videos went around um, Retea's school, like she she changed schools three times, and that the videos continued to follow her. Uh, that and that's eventually what led to her um, suicide. But uh, the the striking thing, to, or like the haunting thing, was, was like these these guys that posted that they didn't their 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 conscience didn't accuse them. They they just thought that this was normal, and so it was that that question of why did these guys think this was normal? That's how I came to um, realize that it's. The, the online content that they're watching that normalizes this. I, I always find it fascinating. We have great discussions in this country around advertising and the ad, ad standards and what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do and what you can 
market to children and what you can't market to children. And for, for some reason, we have extensive amounts of regulations about the 30-second ad that you see before a video, and but no consideration at all to what the, the like, 30 or the like the three minute video that comes right after that ad has to say right and we are we are participating in the largest social experiment of mankind more than likely since 2007 and the internet tube sites uh or the porn tube sites um widely accessible video porn and how what what kind of effect that's having i think the roteo parsons case is an example of what kind of effect it is having but um, that's an extreme case for sure. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. When you when you were discussing it in that video, it's it's definitely haunting in terms of you know the fact, as you said, that they that they perceived this as okay or normal. Um, yeah, uh, I don't even. Yeah, mm-hmm. a level of speechless. Right. Yep. Yeah. No, it's. Uh... Yeah, and so it's how to, how to deal with that. That's going to be going going forward. That is a number of the things. So we're looking at uh, so meaningful age verification. So on the front side, um, I, I try to like split it into the two sides of the screen. So on the front side of the screen, um, just keeping keeping kids from accessing it, right? So meaningful age verification. Porn, Pornhub brags extensively how they're the best technology company in the world. They're the, they're the, they use all the cutting edge technology and they, they have all, all this uh, abilities to scrutinize who's looking at their stuff. So surely if they're the best, they should be able to keep kids off their site, right? Um, in terms of like kids looking at their site. So uh, we're looking for meaningful age verification legislation um, it already is in the criminal code that you may not provide um, graphic images or, or explicit images to children. That's illegal in Canada, but there doesn't seem to be any enforcement of that. So um, I'm calling on the government to work to ensure that that is indeed happening. Um, the other thing is from the on the, saying on this side of the screen is we look to the UK. Uh, they they've kind of been leaders on this. Um, it's called uh, opt-in legislation, and I think the state of Utah just last week actually passed a, a, a law in this regard as well. Just that if you buy a device, there's many um, se- settings features that would prevent pornography from showing up on your device, but they're often switched off. And and so the Utah and the UK have it. If you buy a device, those settings are switched on um, when you buy the device. And if you want pornography to be available on your phone or your, you have to go in and manually turn them off essentially. So it's just basically reversing the onus um, from being on to being off. And so that's that's the like opt-in legislation. You have to opt in to get it. And so those that's the front side of the screen. Those are like kind of the two big initiatives that I would like to see on that side of the screen. And then on the back side of the screen, um, just meaningful, like more age and consent verification, much like the United States has. The United States has it really only on age, um, but I think given where we are in, in history now, like they passed that those laws back in the 60s, I think was just like a photocopy of the person's ID to ensure 
that they are of age. They're over 18. Um, but but today we should be able to ask for age and consent because we know that many of the f people that appear in pornography and explicit videos, they they haven't necessarily consented to being in the video. Um, right. Even though it may, may look like they do at the in the moment, um, years later when they escaped their trafficker, they say, hey, yeah, and not only was I being trafficked into prostitution, I was also being filmed and and my the, my trafficker was making money off of me on Pornhub as well, and so we want we want these companies to ensure that a they the people being portrayed are over the age of eighteen, and b that they're consenting to having their image posted on their site. Yeah, and I just want to say, like, I'm guessing there's an aspect if someone was you know being critical, they would say, well, you know, you can get if you're if you you know have kidnapped someone, let's say, from a human trafficking perspective, chances are you could get them to sign. Um, but from a, if I was, you know, although they can sort of make that claim, adding yeah. these barriers to entry will ideally reduce the number, even though some people may be able to get around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the other, the other part of it just is around, like, ongoing consent, right? Because um, that's been a big challenge around... Um, folks have said, hey, that's me in that video. Can you take it down, right? And it's like, yeah, but you don't own that video, right? And they're like, yeah, but it's me, right? And that's like, so while while we'd like to prevent it from getting up in the first place, um, we also want to ensure that it can come down, can come down when the person wants their, their image to come down. Mm -hmm. Now, I noticed on your site, you were talking about ways to fight the porn industry. And you talked about uh, how do we update the criminal code of Canada to reflect the Palmero, Palmero protocol? Palermo protocol. So what is a Palermo yeah. protocol? So that's a, a like a UN uh, five point identification. So that's more around the human trafficking. So um, the UN has put in place. I don't. I can't remember right off the top of my head the, all the five points. I know that in Canada. We are, we are just lacking on one of the points. But basically, the Palermo Protocol is a is a template for which you can use so that an, an objective person can see if somebody's being trafficked or not, right? So one of the challenges that we have in Canada is that the if we suspect somebody of being trafficked, um, whether it's labor trafficking or sex trafficking, um, we have to get that person to say, yes, I'm being trafficked in order for us to be able to prosecute that person or their, their trafficker, right? Um, the Palermo Protocol, what it does is it sets forward a series of five criteria that if all five of those criteria are met, whether the person themselves thinks that they're being trafficked or not, we can charge their trafficker with trafficking. Because one of the problems problems that we have many times is that, particularly in sex trafficking, um, they don't the the person who's being trafficked doesn't believe that they're being trafficked. They just think that this is their boyfriend and they have to make money and all this kind of stuff, right? So that that's what the Palermo Protocol is, and and to get Canada fully in line with it would be that we'd have we have to get rid of the requirement in the Criminal Code for. Um, the person who's being trafficked to live be living in fear. So that's the the technical the technical part of it. But um, just off the top of my head, um, the ability to leave their place of work um, 
like and go find another job that's one of the things um are they getting their own money like if they're making money does it go into their own bank account that's another another identifier um do do they have access to their own id that's another identifier so like if they don't have access to their own id if the money that they're generating isn't going into their bank account and if they are if they aren't able to leave and go find another job like there's and then there's two more things as well i just can't remember off the top of my head but um then you can identify from the outside that that person's being trafficked you just have to prove all those those five things right um because that's one of the challenges that we have with um with combating human trafficking is that if it if somebody has drugs on them um we don't have to like prove that they're drugs we just like we just say hey they have drugs on them and it, it's illegal to have that so you can charge them with it whereas a human trafficking case we have to first like we have to prove that the person that they're trafficking is not just their girlfriend but is actually their trafficking victim and that's a that's always a challenge um right here in canada so to fully bring us in line with the Palermo protocol um i think would be a great benefit to canada well and even but it sounds yeah it sounds very difficult um well, I mean, I guess part of it is, uh, like, what would, like, what would that look like to be able to identify a scenario like that? Because unless you have some kind of inside information, um, you see a guy, you see a girl, and yeah, they look like you said they they look like they're together, um, but you wouldn't know she doesn't have access to her her ID or that the money isn't going into her account. Um, and and things like that and it almost seems very difficult to um to be able to identify yeah it is difficult to identify but um so what what ends up happening often is is um the police do police checks on on tra these trafficking they they suspect that there's a girl that she's in a hotel room uh and she's um she, she seems to spend a lot of time there but um and and she's prostituting herself now um, she, the, the police will kind of monitor that and they'll notice that she goes and every night she delivers uh, money to an ATM machine, right? Um, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. She, they, when they ask her for her, her ID, she doesn't have any ID, right? Like, how do you check into, like, so she's staying in a hotel, but she doesn't have any ID. They can ask her if she has any money and she doesn't have any money right? Where, where's your bank card, right? I don't have a bank card, that kind of stuff, right? So, but they, they know, they can prove that she's depositing money every night into a, into an ATM machine, right? Um, so, so it, it, yeah, you're right. It takes a bunch of effort, no pro, no doubt. But um, to this point, we, we do all of those things. The, the only thing that in Canada that we're missing about it is, is just that they, the police also have to prove that she's living in fear and that she she believes she's being trafficked. The moment that she says that she believes that she's being trafficked, they can make the case. Um, but up until that moment, up until the moment, if she doesn't believe she's being trafficked, even though she doesn't have any ID, the money isn't going into her bank account and she can't leave. Um, but because she's not living in fear and is not asking the police to help her, um, they, they can't prosecute the trafficker. 
Yeah. And I guess, you know what, now that, I, now that you say that, I think in my mind, a lot of times it just takes as a friend or a family member who knows the person and they find out where the person is. And sometimes it just takes someone to say, Hey, look, um, this is my cousin or my friend and they've been missing for months. They're not coming home. Um, keep an eye out for them. Yeah. So they're on, yeah, so they're on the, the radar. Yeah. But the police will find them and and say like hey your family's concerned about this and stuff like that and the, they say no no i'm doing fine this is just my boyfriend i'm just living here with my boyfriend um there, there's nothing the police can do about it right and so that that's where that's where and 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 like believe me the traffickers know this as well right so the traffickers will train train the, their traffic victims on exactly what to say and what not to say right it'll be a scripted message that they give when the police show up um, just to ensure that they don't, the trafficker doesn't get arrested. Yeah. And I guess like, I don't know, it's kind of weird. Cause I guess for us is, you know, living in a first world country uh, and a very nice one at that. Um, <laughs> even just, even just like, uh, you know, that saying that Canadians are such nice people. And, and sometimes we, we think like, okay, yes, we can acknowledge, acknowledge that self, that sex trafficking exists over there, overseas in second world, third world countries, or even in the US, like that's something that they do. And especially for people that um, live live middle class, um, you know, it's just, you know, you have your nice, well manicured lawns and it's business as usual. We don't, it's like, you don't, you don't see it, but of course it exists online. Clearly it exists online, but sometimes we just ignore it because we don't see it. We don't see prostitutes on our corners. And it's hard, I guess, for Canadians. Sometimes that we probably t- turn a, a blind eye to that. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that. That is a reality. Um, although once you are aware of it, and so that's the like we had the big win on uh, last week there, past the fe- fe- recognizing February twenty second as the Human Trafficking Awareness Day, and and that's uh, that's just an important thing to, to so that once once people are aware, um, you begin to notice it more, right? Um, it's, it is, it is out of sight, but it's not that far out of sight, right? It's, uh, I always say human trafficking is happening within 10 blocks of where you live. Like, right. Keep your eyes peeled and you, and you will see it, um, and be aware of it. There, so there's, and there's things you can do about it right there. If you suspect, a case of human trafficking, um, contact the human trafficking hotline. There's a hotline here in Canada that you can call 24 hours a day. It's uh, up and running. And you can you can say, hey, I suspect a case of human trafficking happening here. And the hotline will get in touch with um, local organizations that can, can do a ch- spot check, can help a victim, all these kinds of things. Get the police involved if they need to be. Yeah, um, it's funny now, now I think about it. Uh, you know, now that you say that, I do, I do, it does come to my mind that um, I have uh, friends who are no longer friends anymore um, who were trafficking, um, who were trafficking girls. Um, and when it, when it popped up in, in the news and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, this so-and-so, you know, he was, um, you know, trafficking girls. And I, it was just one of those things that you just, sometimes you just don't assume the person would be up to that or whatever the case may be. But now that you mentioned, I'm like, yeah, I do have, um, 
um, guys who I grew up with, uh, who I used to hang out with, who grew up to start, who grew up and started doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah actually like, now I think like, about it. They don't, they don't advertise that they're a human trafficker, right? Like, well, it'd be like a pimp. I guess it would be, we just see yep. it like, okay, yo, he's, he's just a pimp. Yep. Yep. Yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah, and the, um, like, in the early 2000s, that was cool, right? Like, um, the word pimp was, a uh, uh, pimp my ride, right? Yeah, yeah, show, yeah, right? or like, pimp, pimp juice, or whatever the case may be, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, so that was, like, a cool thing, right? Like, a gangster kind of thing, and, uh, and, yeah, but, you know, you never sat back for a moment and thought about it, like, what are they actually doing? And so that's the what they're actually doing is called something called human trafficking, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would assume something like ninety-five plus percent is not so voluntary of a relationship, um, with regards to like, I mean, I, I mean, I think on the the Mind Geek episode previously, we were talking about, you know, um, the the the. If for a girl, there there may be a need for protection, and and so you know there is a chance who someone who's voluntarily in prostitution, I don't want to say doing it you know intentionally, but um, having a relationship to give them protection, and and the you know that's probably what most people think of with pimping, but as I mentioned, it's probably a lot closer to ninety five plus percent where it's it's not that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like I always say the human trafficking, um, anybody can fall victim to it. Um, traffickers just play on a vulnerability and sometimes that vulnerability is is not what you would typically think of as a vulnerability. So like a, a strong family structure, um, a, a conservative Christian family, uh, that you would think, oh, that would be a hedge of protection. But in, in some case, that might actually be the vulnerability because um, the girl gets lured into the wrong crowd, does some does something that she's not proud of, and her trafficker will say, hey, I'll tell your friends and I'll tell your friends and family what you're up to here, right? Like, um, unless you unless you keep uh, c- continue to do what what I ask you to do. Um, I will uh, I'll let your friends and family know where you're where you're at or or like you're I'm trafficking you right now but if you don't continue to um, participate uh, I'll go get your sister right your your 14 year old sister will go will go recruit her and we'll get her doing the same thing right then so those well well those seem like a, a, a protective measure or protective regime a strong family and um, that can actually be exploited by the traffickers so the traffickers will exploit anything that they they can um, I, I've heard of a case in Montreal where it was a 12 year old girl uh, upper middle class family and her her parents thought she was going to school every day and meanwhile for about three months she was being um, sold for sex uh, every day right and so that yeah and they just yeah, she, she her parents thought she was going to school, and she left left at a school time and got home at a school time, but hadn't been in school for a few months. And it wasn't until the teachers like said like, "Hey, your your daughter hasn't showed up at school for a couple months." And they're like, "What?" So that that's eventually how that uh, that one broke. But yeah, 
but it's uh yeah so it's like this there is no stereotypical um story other than like they will find a vulnerability and exploit it mm-hmm. yeah the there's actually a scenario that the I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with my uh, wife was a foster mom to four teenage girls uh, before we got married uh, working through a, you know, a home essentially. And she, you know, she would see essentially older men start trying to date these girls and she could tell they were being groomed. And so, you know, that, that sort of grooming and, and the reason, you know, the vulnerability of being foster care, you know, the limitate, you know, the lack of family support, you know, I know you gave the example where they have the family support and they exploit that, right? But the other side of the spectrum as well. So, as you said, they look for any opportunity. Um, yeah. And I think the, the yeah, concept they'll, of... the, they'll show up with fancy cars and shower them with gifts and buy them a condo building and all this kind of or, and or a condo and things like that. And then all of a sudden they'll turn on them and say, hey, I've got these massive debts because of you. Like, mm-hmm. um, we got to go start making some money here, right? Yeah, and I think um, the concept of grooming really is what plays into what you said about those protocols because the the grooming is where they don't they're not in fear because they've been groomed into this scenario that you know they're not afraid but they are sort of stuck and exploited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, all of this discussion is um, like we we talk about it in terms of human trafficking and and the traffickers and and things like that, but. Um, the traffickers are 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 most like if you want to give them the um, the most benefit of the doubt, I suppose you could say, are are merely businessmen, right? Like, and that that is the underlying issue that we need to address as a Canadian society, as a country. Is the the fact is is that there's a lot of money to be made trafficking girls for sex and why is that right because somebody is willing to spend money on that and that's the like the demand side that we gotta we gotta address and that's where the pornography thing comes back right um pornography is the is the marketing material for human trafficking pornography is um how people get drawn in pornography builds an appetite all of these kinds of things and that's that's where we see like the demand for um the demand for the sex trafficking just continues to increase around the western world Mm -hmm. yeah um i'm not sure so i think around 2016 canada had changed its its prostitution laws um and I know that around that time there was a documentary going around called Red Light, Green Light. They were sort of promoting the um, Nordic model. Um, as it's, I know that we didn't quite pass that, but um, I wonder if you can speak to uh, if you saw some of the change that that caused, and and um, you know what what uh, what implications or or what further change that that you're looking to that you think we can make, whether it be porn. Uh, prostitution and, and and things along those lines. Yeah, so in in 2013, actually, we passed the PSEPA law. It's a Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons um, Act, and uh, and that's uh, it is essentially the Nordic model. So what it it uh, no longer criminalizes the girls, but it 
criminalizes the the pimps and the johns, uh, and the johns would be somebody that purchases sex. The um, so it's been in place now for eight years. Um, it, what's very fascinating about it is, is that it's it's taken it took four or five years just to get police forces to start enforcing the law the way it is written, and so that's been an, an education piece that's that's we're struggling with. But it also um, we've also just seen that the demand has gone up continually, so that the police forces are just not able to keep up with the number of cases that there are like it the the case number continues to go up now part of that is because police forces are becoming more educated on what the law actually is and they're starting to enforce it better so you see more cases because of that but the other thing is is that there just is seems to be that's like um, public school we had we had a survivor come and present before the uh, bunch of parliamentarians oh about a year ago and she had she was doing research around the um prostitution the connection between prostitution and pornography and she was in sweden just at a high school there and just having conversations with the high school students and like secular atheist high school like public high school and she was just talking about like okay like pornography and pornography use and like one of the girls piped up and said oh like i won't date a boy who looks at pornography right and and she said that's kind of indicative of where they're at in in Sweden like they understand the connections between pornography and human trafficking and prostitution um and so the, my hope and dream is that uh that we would get we would get there here in Canada um, get to that point where um folks don't look at pornography because they don't want to contribute to the human trafficking and they don't want to be a part of the demand and all these kinds of things. But. Yes. Wow. Um, so, what what would be the impact on sex trafficking if prostitution was decriminalized? Yeah, that's um, the 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 decriminalized is the term that uh, the left uses all the time. So the liberals passed at their youth convention a couple of years back that. They would youth they youth convention yeah um they they passed a resolution there that calling for canada to decriminalize prostitution um i think this is a devastating tra trajectory to go down uh, we've seen places uh around the world have have done that so new zealand um new zealand germany and a big chunk of Australia have gone this direction. Uh, interestingly, the it has caused an explosion in human trafficking in all of those areas. Uh, Germany, for example, uh, Germany is kind of similar to Canada. Like you have a social insurance number. There's like uh, EI programs and and uh, workplace like workers rights that are enshrined in legislation and so the big argument was is that um, because this stuff was all driven underground these workers had no rights um, now what's interesting is is after they legalized it um, the argument was is that all these all these people that were being prostituted would come forward and register, get a social insurance number, register for their EI benefits and all this kind of stuff. After they legalized it, a grand total of 
seven, like you can count on two hands, <laughs> seven people came forward and registered, right? Wow. And they went, they went from an estimated 70,000 um, people being prostituted in the country to 700,000 people being prostituted in the country. Um, so uh, while the arguments were all logical and kosher and um, they, they were soundly made, um, we're going to protect these people and all this kind of stuff and we're going to give them all the benefits that every other worker has and all this kind of thing. Um, the reality has not borne that out whatsoever. And in fact, the problem has increased dramatically. Now, one of the things that um, uh, outfits like Defend Dignity here in Canada, they're uh, like anti-exploitation group, um, what they do for shock value is they will publish one of these like German broth, legal German brothel uh, menus, right? And that, like, if you want to get sick, um, it's, I, I, that, that is, that is something you read and you will get sick for sure. So that just to prove the point that uh, decriminalizing this does not end, end the exploitation. Yeah. And I mean, obviously the, you know, again, as you said, the kosher, you know, with regards to the arguments that all was proposed. And I think that's where, you know, the Nordic model, um, you know, try uh, to some extent, it doesn't go down the legalization, but it's, it, it aims to avoid, um, the criminalization of the individual who's being exploited. And, and I think, you know, for someone who's making the legalization argument, I'm guessing your responses, your challenges to them would sort of be, okay, well, how do we minimize exploitation if you're going to uh, put forward this concept? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like the, the argument always is, is like, well, what happens? What, what about the women that choose this? What about the women that choose this? Right. And I say, well, I, I don't doubt that there are, you will be able to find a case of a woman who has chosen to have, live a life in prostitution. I, I don't doubt that there are those women that exist. However, the vast majority of women that I have talked to and that have been interviewed and, and that the research has been done on that are living a life of prostitution have not chosen to be there, right? And so for, for the sake of the 90% of the women that do not choose to live in prostitution, I would make the case that we should not allow uh legalized prostitution because it it is inherently exploitive even though you may be able to find uh, a woman in the world that that has chosen that life um i i make i make the case that we we make a bunch of things not for sale in this country right um our sexuality in my opinion is one of those things that should not be for sale um my vote or your vote, for example, we, it is illegal to buy my vote. It's illegal to buy your vote. It's like a, somebody cannot come to you and offer you money so that you vote for them, right? That is something that is not for sale. Um, your kidney is not for sale in Canada. You may not sell your kidney, right? That is because we, we recognize the inherent exploitative nature of the fact that if people could go around buying kidneys... Um, poor people would be without kidneys, right? That that, that we, we recognize that there that causes an imbalance in 
in the voluntariness of of donating your kidneys is if you can just pay for one well then wealthy people get kidneys and poor people don't right so so we have laws around purchasing of of organs um we also have a law in this country that says it is illegal to buy sex and i and i i'm ready to defend that and i think that that is uh because we recognize the exploitative nature that can come when people are put in a situation where they have no money they need money or somebody else can make a lot of money um by by selling uh, sexual favors so that's that uh, it just it, like the whole um like the the christian sexual ethic is is long ways away from where we are it's legal requirements in this country but even even if you take take at face value what the legal requirements are the the whole conversation around our sexuality in canada is around the whole idea of consent um once you start throwing money into the middle of it all um what the the whole idea of consent gets a lot more murky yeah i mean i i'm pretty um free market in nature but um you know, I see what you're saying in that I think uh, the simplest way I'd almost rephrase what you said is the ability to perceive whether it was consensual or not um, becomes a lot more difficult when, you know, the, the numerical side could potentially skew that perspective um, because um, you're exploiting, you know, someone's poverty to me that, that they feel like they don't have a choice. Um, mm mm-hmm. So. Yeah, you you have that for one, but like that that like so everybody wants to, particularly when they bring it into that, they want to bring it as just two parties and making a transaction, right? And if and even if that was even if we could grant that, that would be less exploitive. But the the big problem that we have is is that there's the third party, the the pimp, right? And that that is never considered in the the whole argument right the fact that it's how do you how do you distinguish between the Protective one services <laughs> yeah yeah exactly like how do you how do you distinguish between one one person who chooses to be there and the other person who's being forced there against her will um by by a pimp right that's that's the and so given the overwhelming evidence that in the 90% women are not choosing to be there. Um, we should, we should fall on, on it. Like, Hey, it is illegal to buy sex in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, from a, I lean a little bit more libertarian and I, I would say, you know, that's an area where, um, you know, from for uh, and I don't to be honest, the the term libertarian sometimes bothers me, and I tend to use um, you know voluntarism, and and I think you you sort of raise a really good point that, you know, this is an area where, if you could, you know, um, protect the scenarios that are purely voluntary, and then when I made the comment about um, protective services, right? How do you decipher the pimp who's exploiting from the pimp who's paid as a protective service voluntarily? Um, as opposed to the one who's hoarding the money and and you know sharing a little bit with with the person he's exploiting, um, I think I think it's a very good point that um, ensuring or or protecting against the non voluntary um, 
it, it may it, it it seems at least at this point to be wiser in our country to um, protect the ninety percent at the cost in quotation marks the cost of of allowing the voluntary of ten percent to continue. So um, I think you know a question that I have sort of you know um, maybe some of the listener if they want to you know whether it's get involved with this you know the stuff that you're doing with with regards to the laws here, you know, what do you have any recommendations? Um, is, you know, is it just, Hey, write a letter to your counselor reference this particular scenario. What, what would you say uh, for someone who wants to get involved with, let's say um, protecting the vulnerable or refining the, the, the porn laws to, to reduce exploitation? Um, mm-hmm. What would you recommend? Well, the, uh, the first thing I always say is just quit looking at porn, right? That would be a good start. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the second the second thing I, I say is uh, um, donate some money to me. I always appreciate that. <laughs> My campaign is always looking for some more money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the third thing um, is uh, get involved with an, a local organization that's uh, fighting exploitation, whether it's uh, the, an anti-pornography group or uh, anti-human trafficking group. Every every city, every town in this country has, an or, has a... It's, often like affiliated with the local church or something like that, will have a, a group that's um, fighting um, pornography and, and sexual exploitation and uh, get involved with these groups. They have, uh, they're always looking for more talent and more ideas. Um, uh, and so, um, yeah, most of the provinces are, are starting like their own task force, human trafficking task force, um, Alberta, BC, Manitoba, uh, Ontario, they all have they all have one. So there's opportunities to get involved in that. Um, if you live in a province that doesn't have a task force yet, uh, advocate to your to your MLA to to push for one. Um, at the municipal level, uh, if you want to get involved in politics, um, at the municipal level, uh, work on work on getting making sure that like any public Wi-Fi, so at the swimming pool or the curling rink or whatever, if there's Wi-Fi that's being, make sure that porn isn't available on that Wi-Fi. The public library, for example, make sure that the public library is not supplying, not helping feed people's porn addiction, right? But but, but um, you would figure you would figure that they would, they you know that those would be common sense stipulations that a lot of common Wi-Fi places would put up. No, not at all. Like in fact, in fact, in Ottawa, um, there was big kerfuffles around. Um, Yes, some some guy was like at the public facing, like one of the first computers at the library facing the door as everybody walked in and he was looking at porn on the computer right there. And like these families were coming through the door. Yeah. And and some mom was just like, like, turn that shit off. And (laughs) then, (laughs) nope, not, not, no, this is is my right. That's exactly it. This is my right, right? And so, yeah. And then the library got involved and was kind of like hot potato with the whole thing, um, and it was a big discussion, right? Like, like it seemed seemed to me like, hey, this is a public place. If it's it's one thing to like do that in the privacy of your own home, but like no, you don't have to do that right here. So, well, not to mention the law about exposing children to explicit images. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like. <laughs> um, <laughs> I yeah. Don't know. So, so yeah, so there's, there's lots of areas to work on. Um, yeah. And then, and then there's the whole, um, just around, like when I say like quit looking at porn, 
and you you chuckled that's that's a pretty common reaction um but i know many many church organizations are spending a lot of time helping helping people get out of their porn addiction like it's like when when we say when we say 85% of the population is using porn on a weekly basis like those that's the statistic like and that that cuts cuts across society right like it's not it's not just one segment of society that's that's across society so so yeah that's the that's the challenge yeah no what well, well, you're doing really great work if if people want to get in touch with you how can they get in touch with you yeah so you can visit uh visit my website you just google me google my name arnold Viersen. Uh, so it's a r n o l d and Viersen is v as in victor i e r s e n and that should bring you to the government of canada's uh, website and from there you can find my personal website um you can participate by uh printing off a petition there we've got petition supporting uh, uh senator milda shane's uh bill to ensure that children aren't getting access to pornography it's called bill s203 i'm sure if you just google that you'll at bill s203 you'll probably get all kinds of information as well and uh you should be able to find me um, through that too. I'll, uh, I'll put that in the show notes page. If, uh, you know, I, I would love to, uh, pick your brain on something a little bit slightly off topic. Um, but you know, we had, uh, I don't know if you're familiar, Candace Malcolm, we had her on the show okay. a while yeah. back and, and she yeah, was sort of talking. True. Yeah. True North. Um, yeah. She was talking about sort of the Wexit movement and, and oh, since yeah. you're sort of right in the heart of that, um, yeah. you know, I know it's a, a total change of gears, but when she was talking about it, it sort of dumbfounded me that, you know, I, you know, we hear about it right after the election and, and it was sort of like, okay, yeah, just it, it's over. But she sounded like it was a little bit more substantial. And so, you know, someone there, I wonder, you know, is that a fair assessment? If you could maybe give your two cents on that. Um, obviously the pandemic yeah. probably paused all. Yeah, potential. no, that's uh, <laughs> like the, like Wexit uh, movement is, or like Alberta separation is, is an it doesn't ever go away right it's a um it's under undercurrent that's existed here in here in alberta um this this whole idea that alberta gets a raw deal from the rest of the country um equalization payments like um yeah albertans in general are just like agitated around the way that they're treated by the country um this isn't something that uh, particularly folks from like uh, Ontario, Quebec, just don't understand, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. and I and I, I talk about this more often, where folks, um, if you're from if you're from Ontario and you're traveling the world, and people say, well, where are you from? You'll say you're from Canada. Um, if you're from Alberta and you're traveling the world, and people ask you where you're from, you say you're from Alberta. I'm right? assuming it, Quebec's it, probably similar. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm likely, likely, but they, it's, um, yeah, and so it's. Like the Alberta, we we have an an idea here called the Alberta Advantage. Um, so we've we've typically been the lowest tax regime in the country and one of the most more successful um, regimes in the country in terms of like proportionate GDP and things like that. And so um, there's just a frustration in Alberta around the fact that we've we we've contributed outsized proportion con- contributions to the country and yet zero recognition uh, and uh, seemingly like all of the things that we want to be doing continually getting shut down. So the 
the real sticking point right now is the Keystone XL pipeline is uh, um, is been been vetoed by the president of the United States and the prime minister is nowhere to be found on it, right? And that's just like if it was uh, if it was a uh, aerospace jobs in in Montreal that were being threatened by a decision by the American president, believe me, the prime minister would be going apoplectic over it, right? He would. Um, the SNC Lavalin scandal, right, where he's like defending 800 jobs in Quebec, and he and he and he like accidentally broke the law while he was doing that, right? He's like, well, I was just protecting the jobs, and meanwhile, Keystone XL is 8,000 jobs here in here in Alberta, and it's just like, ah, there's nothing we can do about it, right? And that's, right, that's right, the, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's the that's the frustration, right? Yeah, right. talking out of both sides of your mouth almost. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just the, like the different treatment from one side of the country. So, and there's a th probably thousands of these things, right? Like going back generations. So there is a mill rate. Um, if you ship something on the railway, there was a mill rate. Um, and it was like three times as much for Albertans to ship their products to Ontario as it was for an Ontarian to ship their, their products to Alberta. Right. And it was just like, well, why? Right. Like, why does it have to be like that? And that was like a rate set by the government. Mm. Um, and so, yeah. So like a guy that was building nails, like for building houses, um, nails for nailing wood together, he he would be building nails here in Alberta and he had to compete with nails that were being built in Ontario. And so if he wanted to ship his nails to Ontario to compete with them, it would cost him three times as much to ship it to Ontario as it cost them to ship it theirs to Alberta, right? Effectively making it impossible for him to compete with, with them. And so it was, it's just like things like that all the time. Right. And the, the, yeah, the pipeline politics is probably currently the biggest, biggest issue, right? So the, the pipelines require federal, approval and we've we've watched the like northern gateway pipeline get cancelled the energy east pipeline get cancelled the lack of concern around the keystone xl pipeline um the trans mountain pipeline like total boondoggle um and that that when we are unable to when we're unable to ship our products um then it, it becomes a mute point to even produce the products right yeah, I mean the 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 shipping rate thing sort of dumbfounds me. I mean, just you know, thinking about it in this sort of like an economics or mathematics even perspective, you're like, well, it's not like there's you can have three times the shipment from one direction to the other, right? Like, I, I don't know. It just sort of dumbfounds me, right? Like that everything that goes one direction has got to go back the other potentially. So, you know. I could see a you know potential in difference in prices, but but to be th a three hundred percent difference uh, does seem very uh, questionable and almost uh, egregious. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I and mean, then it and it's things like so the one of the latest ones that we've been uh, we've been trying to get the government to change on. So like there's an equalization idea in the uh, constitution. So it just says like the 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 services that the government provides must be equal across the country, right? So that's, that's an idea, right? But now what happens is, is that the income, the average income in Alberta is almost twice as the average income in New Brunswick, for example, right? So, but because our income tax is collected federally, um, 
Alberta contributes a huge amount because it's a percentage income tax. So Alberta contributes a huge amount of income taxes. Um, and then, be, but because the government has to like spread those, has to pay it equally out, it goes out of the federal government on a per capita basis, right? And so while there's lots of money comes out of Alberta, there's not necessarily lots of people in Alberta. So then a place like New Brunswick, where not a lot of money comes out, uh, when the government goes to provide services, it has to spend the same amount per person in New Brunswick as it does in Alberta. And so we, we end up getting back a lot less than we pay out. Now, there one one of the, there's a call, uh, um, revenue stabilization program that the federal government operates and so if your revenues drop dramatically as a province the federal government will will top it up but then there's this like arbitrary cap at sixty dollars per person is all that they will pay out of that program and that just recently that's starting to like really hit alberta and the fact that like we've had some significant drops in our revenues here due to the price of oil and and covid economic downturns and things like that so so there's like why is that cap on there right the only people that it's ever really affected is alberta right and it's like um why did you why do we have to have that cap on there right it just it's an arbitrary thing that happens but yeah then we get shafted out of six million or six billion dollars mm-hmm. so so those are like does that come through like the equalization payments that that we've always heard yeah like, i think it's something like quebec's always been in the negative like always getting a positive and, and alberta's always getting the you know basically negative on those equalization payments yeah so alberta alberta has received over like 200 years uh or 150 years of since confederation alberta has received 90 million uh, that's with an m million um in terms of equalization payments um and has paid out uh, like, like uh, 600 billion, right? And Quebec, Quebec over that same period of time has received uh, 200 billion. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, I mean, as a as a sort of free market competition sort of oriented person, yeah. you know, my thought is that some of the things that make as you said, the the economics of Alberta more competitive. You know, you talked about having lower taxes, tax burdens, which drives more people to come there. It's made you more competitive, but then it, the the province like Quebec, which has higher taxes, has their QST, which is you know again all these things that like make it less competitive. Here's a scenario where they're sort of undoing um, the comp, the, the having mm-hmm. different laws. Yeah, well, and what's so frustrating, like another thing that's so frustrating about it is the, like, mo- a lot of the, like, angst in Alberta is around the fact that, like, hey, we develop our natural resources, we drill for oil, we, we're cleaning up the oil sands and all this kind of stuff. Um, the oil sands, by the way, is nat- nature's largest oil spill, right? The, so we're, we're cleaning that up. But <laughs> uh, we're developing all that now. They have a moratorium on drilling in, in Quebec. Like they've got energy there, right? But they have a moratorium on drilling there. Uh, same with New Brunswick, uh, same with Nova Scotia, just a, a moratorium on drilling. And so we pay out all this equalization, which goes to fund fund their social programs, right? And so, but they have them, like, so while they condemn us for developing our oil patch, they have their own oil patch, which they aren't 
producing, but they're happy to take the money from our oil patch, right? Like they're, they're <laughs> you, yeah, you, yeah. you see how what I mean? It's like they 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 have this moral superiority about uh, how Alberta is is developing the oil patch to the detriment of the uh, environment, which also isn't true, and but they'll they keep on spouting this, right? And so they put moratoriums on drilling because lo and behold, if you drill the hole in the ground and, but then are happy to take the money that we get here in Alberta for drilling holes in the ground, right? Like that, that's what's so galling about it. So, mm -hmm. Like, like you didn't like, fine. <laughs> if you don't want to drill holes in the ground, don't drill holes in the ground, but don't take the money that we get from drilling holes in the ground, right? So, yeah. No, it's fascinating because even... Even for us as Ontarians, it's just one of those things that we're not familiar with because it's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just not something. But yeah, it's with. it's all it's very connected because, for example, currently, uh, Newfoundland is experiencing this like rash of bankruptcies, personal bankruptcies, and why is that? Well, because like the Alberta economy is suffering. And all all of the guys that fly out from New Brun uh, Newfoundland to Alberta to work in the oil patch, they're not doing that right now. Right. Interesting. So, Su yeah, there's a Su lot of seasonal sort of like workers, right? Like they would come. Um, it, seasonal, it, might rotational. Not be the right word. Yeah, they're rotational. Yeah, so it's like a two weeks on, one week off. Um, that's a that's a very common. Um, yeah, 2010. So it's 20 days on, 10 days off. That's very common um, oil oil patch job rotation. Mm -hmm. And then they'll fly yeah. home even potentially. Oh yeah, 100% they'll fly home. Yeah, that's to like like I fly out of Ottawa and and I sit on the airplane with lots of guys that are flying in and out. Um, current currently not. There's not a lot of flying happening at all. But um, like when I first got elected, it was the the plane would often be probably half full of uh, New Brunswick and Newfoundland guys, um, flying into Alberta, f working in the oil patch. Right. And they, interestingly, they all pay income tax where they live. Right. So, so that's also hard on their like provincial budgets as well, because they, uh, they're not working in Alberta right now, but yeah, like a place like Sault Ste. Marie, they got the big steel mills there. They got two two big companies up there. One of them is called Teneris, and they build pipe. And eighty five percent of their product ends up in Grand Prairie, Alberta. Right, eleven hundred people in Sault Ste. Marie work for that company. Mm -hmm. Which sort of speaks then, even more to you know the the Cavalier sort of well, I guess you know Keystone Pipeline. It's it's the consequences are are much more seem much more significant than uh, the response sort of uh, warrants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it, like it's so that and all of this drives the separation movement, right? It's like we we pay twenty billion dollars a year to to the rest of the country just to get kicked in the teeth whenever, <laughs> right? Like that's that's, yeah, that's how it's perceived, right? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like there's no thanks. It's like, oh yeah, thanks for, thanks for carrying the country, right? Like, no, it's it's like, um, yeah, oh yeah. I know you guys like making money in Alberta here, but um, like we're just gonna like turn, we'll just put a straight jacket on you, so you can't really do anything, right? Like, yeah, when you put it like that, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for for us ignorant Ontario folk, 
<laughs> it's it's not so much like and that's the like the tr like the hardest part to explain to Albertans, right? Like Albertans are convinced that Ontario just hates Alberta. And it's like, no guys, they just don't care, right? Like well, and, like it's out of sight, out of mind. We don't get it. Yeah. Right? Like it's a little bit more like most people have no concept of of the like you know, the transfer payments and, and any of that, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, it's like they're all just living their lives. They like they just go to the gas station and put fuel in their tank. They don't think about where it came from, right? Like, yeah. we don't. We're too busy. That. We're too busy going to Drake concerts or Raptor, Raptor games. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we and we don't care if Trudeau gets the oil from Saudi Arabia, like, you know. Yeah, Venezuela. <laughs> yeah, yeah, any, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, I really appreciate your time today. I think uh, I think you already gave the listener, you know, contact information. Uh, is there anything you want to leave the, the listeners with uh, before we wrap up? Well, I like just uh, yes, yeah, stay engaged. Um, we, um, I, I get the impression your audience might be a more Christian audience. I and we talked a little bit about the separation of church and state in that whole concept. I think that's important for um, folks to consider and, and understand that the, the, the church as like the body of Christ has a role to play in, in civil society and, and to, to get involved and, and make a difference. <laughs> well, we really appreciate your time and, and, and also what you're doing uh, in Alberta. And thank you for coming on. <laughs> anytime guys thanks so much yeah so uh we appreciate your two cents obviously you're adding it to my two cents darnell's two cents six cents makes change but you heard me does that make sense I hear